Presently, a faint sound of music was heard, and the Imperial Concubine's procession at last came in sight. First came several pairs of eunuchs carrying embroidered banners, then several more pairs with ceremonial pheasant feather fans. Then, eunuchs swinging gold-inlaid censers in which special palace incense was burning. Next came a great gold-coloured seven phoenix umbrella of state, hanging from its curved top shaft like a great drooping bellflower. In its shadow was borne the imperial concubine's travelling wardrobe, her headdress, robe, sash and shoes. Eunuch gentlemen-in-waiting followed, carrying her rosary, her embroidered handkerchief, her spittoon, her fly-whisk, and various other items. Last of all, when this army of attendants had gone by, a great gold-topped palanquin, with phoenixes embroidered on its yellow curtains, slowly advanced on the shoulders of eight eunuch bearers. One and all, this is another installation of Rereading the Stone. I'm Kevin Wilson, joined as always by William Jones. Will, how's it going today? Pretty good, yeah. Um, this week we're talking about chapter 18, uh, in which we get to meet uh, the character of uh, Jia Yuanchun. Uh, properly you know we uh mm. we know that she exists but we're finally getting the chance to actually kind of see her in the flesh what was your kind of what was your impression of this chapter what do you make of it you know this is another great chapter uh a lot of beautiful poetry front and center so i'm currently poetry pilled and so i really uh you know i i kind of was animated and excited um it's a really a lot of heartwarming scenes, uh, a very moving at times. There's uh, a sense of the, you know, it's again, we're stuck in this maelstrom of reality and fantasy interacting in this dynamic and confusing, perplexing way. Uh, it's really interesting. I feel like it's still, you know, this is a, we're still kind of beginning, you know, so this is our first time meeting the, uh, you know, the original spring, the OG spring. But now she's elevated in this interesting way. Um, and so there's something really good, something really uh, fascinating going on in this chapter. Lots to talk about. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Uh, I'm filled with uh, wonder and trepidation. Um, so how about we, what do you think? Do you want to just do a quick yeah, let's do a uh, recap. Overview? Before, recap, before yeah. that uh, yeah, anticipation gets the, the better of you, let's do a recap. So 
in the past chapter and and kind of uh, in the past little while, um, the novel is focused mainly on the recent elevation of uh, Jia Yuanchun, um, who is one of the young women of the Jia clan, who were this yeah noble Chinese family who were at the center of this novel. Uh, her elevation to imperial concubine. So they're already like a, a noble, wealthy family, um, but this is like a really big deal for them. For her personally, it's a huge increase in kind of prestige and uh, influence, and for the family generally, it's a, it's a sign of um, imperial favor, I suppose. You know, it puts them much closer to the, the sort of center of power. So she's been made an imperial concubine, and the emperor decides that uh, the concubines should be allowed to go home and visit their families sometimes. Um, and so in order to receive her, uh, the, the, the Jia clan has, um, they've like rebuilt part of their enormous mansion and turned it into this, um, this grand garden. Um, and it's full of kind of wondrous mystical marvels. Um, and so in the previous chapter, they were, touring around the garden for the first time the the different members of the of the jack clan um and coming up with um kind of appropriately poetic names for the different bits of the garden uh which is the kind of it's the tradition in china and during that whole process uh our protagonist jia baoyu uh came up with some good names for for various different parts of the garden even though uh his father who was present was very kind of dismissive of um, of his efforts. Uh, and then in this chapter, what's going to happen is Yuan Chun is going to finally make her visit, um, which all the family has been kind of anxiously anticipating. Um, and there is a kind of initial, very ceremonial kind of almost procedure that they all have to go through. Um, and then once that's over, they're finally allowed to kind of be together and and you know just enjoy one another's company um and they do a couple of things together they they all write some poetry which we're going to have a look at um she has a visit to a um, a little temple they watch some kind of plays and you know like different kind of theatrical entertainments and then she makes lots of extremely grand gifts to uh the different members of the family and then she has to head back to the palace and that's where the chapter ends yeah, so th there really is a lot going on. Um, mm. It's nice that we're still uh, kind of building upon the uh, the space that we were introduced to last last chapter. Um, we're getting more familiar with it. We're returning to certain spaces where certain names are changing. Buildings are being filled. Uh, you know, the the dance troupe has arrived. The uh, little nuns ha are occupying their own kind of. Um, you know, the Epcot is is now up and running effectively uh and, and all the hyper real uh players are uh have taken their spots and so it's really it's really dynamic interesting but also sublime a little bizarre a little bit at the edge of tastefulness let's say yeah um <laughs> questionable and that that sort of that that question is uh, recapitulated in the the poems and, and the different quality of the poems. Some of them are a little more artificial, uh, and but then we see that you know uh, 
Bao Chai and Dai Yu are kind of coming into their own as artists. Uh, and so that you can see the difference between uh, the different characters' poems and, and how their poems reflect their personalities and maybe even in some oblique way their fates. There's a lot of the symbolic richness that we saw in chapter five in the dream chapter, uh, but now it's the the dream medium has been replaced with the poetic medium, which is itself, you know, a similarly symbolic, similarly uh, a space of displacement and uh, reflection and mirroring and distortion. Um, so there's a lot going on, a lot to talk about. Let's, let's, how about we just jump right in? What do you think? Yeah, let's let's get stuck into it. So, you know, in the beginning of the chapter, the kind of meat of this chapter is the the actual visit itself. There's a little bit at the start which is just related to kind of further preparations for her visit. So, you know, they're getting the last bits and bobs in for the garden, uh, you know, like bringing in livestock. And as you mentioned, the actors and the nuns um, are all kind of doing their final preparations. We also hear that um, some of the imperial eunuchs have been down to the garden uh, and the kind of surrounding area to kind of scout it out and make sure that it's appropriate to receive her you know Mm -hmm. so we hear that they've had the you know they've had the security guys come down so you're imagining the kind of like 18th century equivalent of like the you know bald guys in wraparound sunglasses with the earpiece you know kind of you know walking down and you know checking out all the sight lines and and you know they've they've had the the police in to you kind of clear the streets around and erect all of these kind of screens so that you know ordinary people can't kind of see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, we finally get the news that she's going to visit, um, and the date that yes. she's going to visit is the Lantern Festival, right? We haven't had any mention of the Lantern Festival mm. since Chapter One, uh, when uh, Xiangling went missing yep. during the Lantern Festival and the Jen uh, uh, Shuyin's servant went to take a leak and uh, she was stolen and uh, essentially sold into slavery. Yeah. Um, I wonder I wonder if that's supposed to be a kind of um, a ob- oblique parallel that we're supposed to think about or not. I, I think so, um, yeah. I think so, because I remember we noticed at the time that, you know, this is... The Lantern Festival is um, its a f- very important feature in the lunar Chinese calendar. Um, you know, it, it occurs in the midpoint of the first lunar month of the year, right? Um, so that's that would be full moon. Um, and that's kind of January, February time in the Gregorian calendar. Um, and because it's that midpoint of the month, we kind of mentioned before this is this is like a... It's a threshold, right? It's a like liminal mm. time, um, and definitely, yeah. My my first thoughts were back to that beginning chapter where, yeah, the the kind of middle aged, uh, comfortably well off scholar Junshi, and he, you know, his whole life is is turned upside down in in a you know very tragic way in a matter of months, and and one of the one of the really earth-shaking things is absolutely as you said the abduction of his daughter um during the lantern festival um who as we now know is one of the one of the maidservants of um this very household and uh do you think that would you correspond this period with the beginning of spring you know like the uh the first spring or or the the first signs of spring 
yeah, you know, I see what you mean. Yes. In parallel with um Yuentron's name. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely a parallel there. Um absolutely. Um so there's a you remember a few chapters ago, um the character Wang Xifeng, you know, um one of the one of the most important kind of female characters in the in the wrong branch of the Jia clan. She um has this dream where one of the other young women who's just about to die uh Qin Keqing visits her in a dream and gives her this you know dire warning about um how the the family is going to you know hit very hard times before too long and the warning she gives her is that when three springs have gone that's when the kind of the family's troubles will will um will really hit um and we can see that Yuan Chun is the first of the springs to go and it's kind of there in her name, as you say, and it is the mm-hmm. beginning of spring this time, definitely. Um, and also maybe, you know, it's as if the she's been elevated to such a uh, high social position. It's as if all the, the seasons themselves are uh, kind of uh, aligned with her own movements. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I agree. And, and as we'll absolutely see in some of the poetry and descriptions here, there's a strong association between the the emperor and the emperor's household on the one hand and the seasons and the weather and the natural world on the other being somehow kind of uh in harmony and there's a few other really nice kind of images in the beginning here where uh basically because the uh because it is still kind of very early in the year um the, the flowers aren't in full bloom and so instead they take uh, all these uh, candles and and they align them on the trees almost like we would uh, like electric uh, like almost like Christmas lights you know but instead of uh, electric lights there there's candles all over the place and they're also placed in the ponds and in in the water uh, to illuminate the the water in this really kind of I imagine really powerful sort of kind of manner yeah yeah, uh, and we we did say you know that some of the <laughs> some of the decoration in the garden is a a bit on the extravagant side, um, but this mm-hmm. does actually sound like really quite like a, a a beautiful scene, right? You know the whole the whole thing kind of illuminated by candlelight from above and from below. I, I think we're going to go back and talk about uh, the specificity of her arrival, but I did want to ask you since we're on the topic of season and time. There seems to be an an inconsistency in this chapter where it's unclear whether like uh, a year has passed or many years have passed, and it seems to be a, an issue in the editing of the text. Did you did you pick up on that? Yeah, yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. The Hawks right uses uses years. Um, if we're talking about the same part, um, yeah. So in in page three hundred sixty one, Yuanchun says. It hasn't been easy, winning this chance of coming back among you after all those years since I was first walled up in that place. Mm-hmm. Is that the one you're thinking of? It is, yeah. Yeah. All those years. It, it seems as if the author is unclear whether he wanted to have it, you know, almost within a year, which is the impression I got, uh, or after many years. So the Chinese is less clear, right? Um the Chinese term that I think Hawks is translating as all those years is kuo bie, um, 
So bier is to be parted from, and quoi means wide, kind of broad, you know. So it's a it's a long separation in Chinese. It it's not as explicit, at least in the version that we're reading. It's not as explicit that this is, you know, specifically a year or years or or what have you. Um, it seems improbable that it should be many years, though, right? I mean, just judging by the way that the kind of story has played out so far, she she mm -hmm. was made a concubine, and everyone was very pleased. And at some point after that, but but really not that long, it doesn't feel like the emperor decided that concubines should be allowed to return home to visit their parents. Mm -hmm. And so all of the jars, you know, ran around very busily, converting the house to a garden. And sure, that will have taken some time, but, you know, I'd think maybe a matter of months. We can chalk that up maybe as another dreamlike inconsistency. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it couldn't have been more than uh, a year or, or a little bit more than that, you know, 18 months at most. But but you're right. There's, a, there's quite a fluid quality to the way that time works in this novel. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes for the benefit of staying on a particular character's story, years will pass or a long period of time will pass within a sec within a certain chapter and then when we pick up someone else's story it's not clear whether we're then going back in time to some other part or or what exactly so so to give you an example when Jia Rei dies in chapter 11 chapter 12 i forget off the top of my head um it seems that he has been sick for quite a long time before he dies. Right. You know, possibly months or years. Uh, so the way that it sort of seems is he, one day he decides to start hitting on his cousin's wife. Um, and then in the space of a couple of days, she kind of leads him on and then entraps him and brings him down in fairly quick kind of succession. And then he is so kind of um, shocked and, beaten down by the whole thing that he kind of takes to bed and gradually um grows weaker and weaker until he he has this this sudden death right but the text seems to suggest that it is a much longer longer time and i think all we need to yeah observe is is what you have that that time is not it doesn't flow in a, a very strict manner in this book it, it it's fluid it's quite flexible um we don't always know exactly where we stand within the chronology there's an issue, here's a transition, there's an issue of the timing, the exact timing of the of Yuan Chun's arrival, right? And so they, they've been preparing the night before the day she was um, scheduled to arrive. Uh, and almost nobody slept because they were too busy and too uh, anxious and full of anticipation. And, and so it's, it's about five o'clock in the morning. Um, it's still dark outside. And basically everyone's all, everyone who, who had any sort of rank or position is already in full court uh, regalia, right? The kind of uh, clothing appropriate to a uh, royal uh, encounter, right? And they're waiting around basically only to be told by a eunuch who arrives that, you know, Yuan Chun probably won't arrive until sometime in the evening, right? Yeah. So they've got themselves all kind of excited for nothing, really, haven't they? Yeah. And so upon hearing that, actually, a number of them go back to uh, retire and to rest, whereas uh, Shifeng sticks around and she, you know, in her kind of um, kind of managerial capacities, attends to various things 
so then finally now kind of the same the same scene uh the same anticipation uh happens again in the afternoon uh but this time you know the uh it actually occurs right yeah this the the second time is a charm as you were, you will have heard in in the opening of the episode there's this um the whole process of her getting to the to the house uh is is quite elaborate you know so there's first of all a group of um eunuchs ride up on horse uh at, at high speed um and they're clapping their hands uh they don't seem to say anything but they clap their hands as a signal that uh she's on the way and that everyone should assemble and and kind of get ready and then as we said you know they they're all standing there and nothing really happens and then a pair of eunuchs ride up very slowly and then another pair and then another pair and on and on and on and eventually you know each each new arrival is another level of kind of seniority or importance right um mm-hmm. so there are ones with embroidered banners there are ones with feather fans there are ones swinging uh golden laid censers with uh with incense inside um and then all of her clothes come in a separate um you know, all of her special ceremonial clothes come are, are like delivered separately from Yuentu and herself. Yes, that's kind of nice, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> a very clear marker of status, isn't it? The level of detail here is really uh, fascinating. They mention, you know, that there's one eunuch who carries her rosary, her embroidered ha- handkerchief, her spittoon, her fly whisk, and various other items. Yeah. <laughs> All very, very. You can see this is maybe, uh, you know, on one hand, this is a sort of uh, a sign of status, and and, you know, also a sign of the author's attention to detail and uh, capacity for minutia. Although I wonder if there is also a little bit of uh, irony and a sort of uh, a mockery of conspicuous consumption. You know, the the tone of the writing is very um, measured and ambiguous, I think, in, in many ways, right? Because these, these, all these details could be interpreted in a whole host of different uh, manners. Yeah, I think we've, we've talk, touched on it before in previous episodes that it's difficult to tell whether this is him playing it straight or whether there is a very, impl- you know, faint implied satire. Um I tend to think it is the latter that there's a there mm. is a satirical element, um, um, as we'll go on to see later in this. Mm-hmm. That's also an issue with the poetry, whether the the praise in the poetry and the things being said are ironic or not, and whether that irony is meant to be uh, attributed to the character or to the author or to some combination of these things. But this is a really, I mean, it's a fascinating scene. They all drop to their knees, uh, and, and then this is a common practice where you you begin to kowtow or to kneel, and then you know if if the recipient of the kowtow is gracious or benevolent, they'll sort of halt your action. Yeah, they'll say no, no, no. You know, stand, stand. You know, and so it's, it's interesting how you. If you're going to do like a kind of a, like a ritual analysis or a sociological analysis, the uh, the mediation of the gesture is as important as the gesture itself, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's completely correct. Talking about fluidity of time, there is a phrase in the Chinese which I think is kind of demonstrates this quite well. So as we know, she's going to arrive... Um, 
on Spring Festival, a uh, Lantern Festival, um, mm-hmm. and the phrase in the Chinese is "Zhuanyan Yuan Xiao Zai Er." So "Zhuanyan" is in literally in like the turning of an eye. Yuan uh, Xiao is a Lantern Festival, Spring Festival, basically, and "Zai Er" means kind of close at hand. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. nearly nearly arrived. Quite like that as a phrase because it's kind of like in the blink of an eye. Uh, in English, Zhuanyan somehow for me it carries this slightly dreamlike quality in that you look away and you look back and things have completely changed um you know things have sort of transformed and that somehow to me reflects the way that time is treated in this novel it's Mm. um the there's a sort of slightly smoke and mirrors aspect to it you know it, it 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 moves in um abruptly suddenly when you're not paying attention Mm. And maybe the visuality, emphasizing kind of uh, instantaneous visual transformations is very um, uh, characteristic of a dream where, you you know, I I think the most prominent sense element in a dream is usually sight. And you're always kind of, um, even though you are the agent in the dream, I, I think even in the dream, you sense yourself as a uh, a kind of a semi-passive viewer of the dream. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of a, that presages the, the experience of artwork, really, where, you know, you watch the the proceedings on the screen or on the stage uh, and you are experiencing them, but you also experience this kind of um, sublime distance from them. Uh, and, and that kind of, yeah, that kind of... I think that that resonates with what you're saying about uh, in in the blink of an eye, you know, because that's that's the the effect that can be achieved in a dream, but also in a a work of art or in a a stage production. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to talk about we see through Yuan Chun's eyes almost when she first enters the garden? That's true, right? And we haven't really, as you mentioned, we haven't, We've heard of Yuan Chun, but she's never been fully fleshed out in the way the other characters. We haven't, we didn't see her in Chapter Seven when Joe Ray's wife went around and gave flowers. She wasn't there mm. for some reason, right? Uh, and now all of a sudden, we're seeing the world through her eyes, which is an interesting effect, I think, because she's already been elevated. So there's something kind of uh, interesting about that that way you present a character. Yeah. So we're just kind of chucked straight into it. We know very little about her as a character and how she how she thinks and feels. Uh, mm-hmm. And we don't really know that much about her background, but we're just, yeah, we immediately get this window on her thoughts. And her overall impression of the garden seems to be that it's a bit on the extravagant side. Uh, kind of wonderful, but almost a bit too much. Mm-hmm. She's delighted, but uh, almost aghast. And, and maybe that's a reflection of her still adjusting to her kind of elevated status. Yeah, you get the impression throughout this chapter that I wouldn't say she's happy. <laughs> I I mean, there, there's certainly an appreciation of status and of, of luxuries and delicacies, but all these rituals and all these attendants and these eunuchs and these procedures and these codes of conduct, they're very clearly uh, like heavily restrictive it's like wearing a like a social the social equivalent of a corset all day long it's it's very it's really um limiting yeah i think that's absolutely right 
she doesn't seem very happy and and there are several kind of points in the chapter that make this quite clear and yeah i absolutely agree that the life that she lives in the position that she holds is full of these sorts of ritual acts which must be performed but which serve to separate her from all of those around her you know all of those that she wants to just kind of be normal with she has to be she has to be ceremonial you know she has to behave in a particular way towards them so with that in mind how about we try to uh, give a an overview of her of the path she takes that sounds good so she she arrives uh she's allowed to she changes her clothes once uh upon arrival and she steps out of her her palanquin you know her kind of uh, it's a sort of sedan chair or carriage right um mm-hmm. and she begins to walk through the garden with her with her ladies in waiting um so it kind of says here the courtyard she now stepped into was brilliant with colored lanterns of silk gauze cunningly fashioned in all sorts of curious and beautiful shapes and patterns an illuminated sign hung over the entrance of the principal building which read filled with favors bathed in blessings so i think that's quite a good you know quite a good introduction it's for anyone who's ever seen a chinese lantern kind of display i guess it will be somewhat familiar having these lanterns in various different uh, shapes and colors you know so made to resemble different animals or clouds or other objects that might be familiar or or more kind of uh, fantastic that's the kind of scene that she emerges into right and so she she kind of passes through the garden she steps onto uh one of the little boats and travels up this um this kind of winding little uh kind of brook or stream and this is where we see the point that you mentioned before the all of the different uh, little candles floating on the water and also up in the trees as well as all of the lanterns i just mentioned in 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 the shapes of flowers or birds or or whatever and so it's yeah it's it's rather dreamlike i suppose this this scene you know gliding along at, at leisure through a world apparently made of you know great kind of glowing um animals and flowers and and uh and other kind of mysterious objects and it's it's at this point where she comes upon the first sign that uh Bao Yu and the and Jia Zheng and the various uh hanger-ons uh had constructed on their tour of the garden last chapter All right so she comes upon in the Hawks translation it's smart weed bank and flowery harbor and then we have a uh, the author breaking the fourth wall breaking the fourth wall as it were you know interrupting the text to have this explanation of why uh if Baoyu's poems were so were, <laughs> were just the kind of the scrawlings of some schoolboy why they were allowed to be incorporated into a garden fit for an imperial concubine and so there's this you know very long explanation of of why and so on which I don't know it's quite funny to me because it's it's you see that kind of thing in in modern English literature I suppose but it's a relatively modern phenomenon I suppose mm. you know it's it's 
<laughs> it's a bit meta. It's a bit self-referential, kind of, you know. Um, and actually, it's framed in the voice of the stone, right? So it's like the stone is speaking to us directly, which I think adds another, which makes sense given the, the heavily uh, layered and kind of self-referential context in which we learned about the stone and how it became, you know, its essence was uh, infused in Baoyu, uh, in the character Baoyu, in the, uh, you know, in our mortal world kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. One other interesting thing from this little aside is we get some backstory about um, Yuan Chun and her relationship to Baoyu. Um, mm-hmm. So we know already that they're brother and sister, and she's the she's the older sister. Um, but we learn that she took on something of a kind of like caring or mothering role to Baoyu when he was younger, mm-hmm. particularly in relation to his education. Um, so she taught him to to read and write, um, and has always been very concerned with his education. So choosing to include poems that he has written and, and kind of poetic names that he has come up with is framed here as um, for her pleasure, you know. Um, mm-hmm. um, that even though these may not be very good, um, they've they've left them in so that she can kind of see them for herself. Yeah, that really actually adds a lot to this chapter. I mean, if this were purely... Uh you know, showcasing professional poetry, even for us as the reader, I, I think it'd be less interesting than, you know, a kind of faithful depiction of among friends composing poetry and, you know, and exchanging them and playing these games and just uh, engaging in the games as one does simply for the act of of striving and, uh, and making mistakes. And I, I think we forget sometimes that this is kind of, an element of art that has been sort of taken from us, maybe. If the only art we consume is mass-produced and mediated through all these companies and, you know, and these, uh, like, global distribution systems, uh, I, I guess this is, yeah, this is just like, a, you know, if your friend writes you a poem, he just just read it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, rather than, you know, just... Because I, I think sometimes we have that where, like, especially with music, you know, maybe, maybe you, you have a friend who... Uh, who makes music and everyone is very, you know, like they tend to be very snobbish about what music they listen to. It's very personal. It has this kind of psychosexual component to it. Uh, But, you know, it's really, it's nice sometimes to, uh, to know the, the artist, to, to go to that local bar and, and, you know, hear the local band or the local poet and I, I think that's one thing we can we can gain from this, even though this is this famous novel in some sense. Um, what it's reproducing, the kind of social dynamics it, it's reproducing, not only in this chapter but in a lot of chapters. I, I think we can really learn from it. Yeah, definitely. The idea that art can just be something created uh, among friends without much preparation, uh, right. just just yeah. for the sake of it, for its own. Yeah, it's a kind of game. It's like art, art and game as these like as these interweaving forms is something we forget about, I think. Yeah, and that it doesn't belong to some other rarefied, separate world that you have to gain entrance to. You don't have to be, like, kissed by capital. You don't have to, you know... If it's not adorned with profit and surplus value, it can still be uh, valuable in a, in a kind of... Uh, in a different sense. Yeah. Okay, so um, 
what happens next? So there's something that I want to talk about briefly here, which I think sets the tone for the chapter. So uh, remember, there's a, a rather grand hall that we encountered in the previous chapter, uh, and this is intended to be the kind of ceremonial hall where, where, you know, she will hold court to begin with. Um, and in the previous chapter, they hadn't named it, but they have now come up with one, um, mm. which is uh, in the Hawks translated as Precinct of the Celestial Visitant, uh, which is a kind of very pompous name. And I mean, that's about what it is in Chinese. It's Tian Xian Bao Jing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, heavenly kind of goddess or spirit, bejeweled, bejeweled land or bejeweled place. Um, so, yeah. Right. Um, it's it's a kind of l- ludicrous name intended to to the maximum extent possible, I suppose, flatter its intended target in this case, Yuan Chun. And I guess the reason I'm making a point about it is that one of the things that I think is slightly sad about this chapter is, even though it's a reunion between her and her family members, at least for some of them, they clearly feel that they have to be obsequious and you know uh, overly flattering to her it's impossible for them just to treat her as they did before you know mm-hmm. um her status has changed their relationship in a way that you know it will never be the same again um and this i guess is is a manifestation of that Yuan says that the name should be changed to the house of reunion which is you know a much less pompous uh and kind of much nicer um kind of name for the place um i want to emphasize that the the original the the pompous name the uh tianxian baojing it really sounds very similar to uh taishu huanjing the uh the land of disenchantment from chapter five mm. um there, there's no way that's not um a very conscious like authorial parallel that's being drawn i think where we had this land of desire the, the dreamland of desire has been um reproduced now on earth in this magnificent garden but uh just as before the uh the, the taishu huanjing was itself you know surrounded by uh darkness and by maybe death and the void mm. right this space as well seems to be um at times uh, it's you know opulent but lackluster maybe you could say there's the same tension in this space that was in the original dream space so in, no matter what kind of space of desire it is there is this um, contradiction maybe at the heart of desire or at the heart of desire in this historical moment maybe yeah I think you're completely right there are very clear parallels between the garden and the the land from Baoyu's dream sequence in chapter 5 and that's kind of made explicit. Well, no, hinted at very strongly, I would say, in the previous chapter. Actually, when Balyu first sees this very building, he is kind of struck dumb. And the reason he is is because he feels like he's seen it somewhere before and he doesn't know where. Right. And so we get the feeling that surely this must be something that he's seen in in, in the dream, right? Um, right. And so, yeah, his, his dreamland has been made concrete in in this garden especially because the the it's the same bao the the tianxian baojing is it's baoyu de bao it's um 
the jewel featured in his name. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so exactly as you observe, I think like this will be, you know, that this it's a physical space, but it's also one full of, yeah, it's a kind of space of, it's an emotional psychological sort of space as well, I guess. Okay. So the first, uh, change, the first kind of correction has been made. And so we're going to see a few more of these as we proceed along. So we have, um, we do have a, um, a poem of sorts here, even though it's not one of the ones actually composed by the characters. Um, and I think we can probably pass over it quite quickly, but it's just good as a, an illustration of the kind of luxury um, that we're, we're dealing with here, right? So, you know, I'll just read the whole thing. From a ring of cressets against the night sky, a fragrant scatter dropped on the flagstones, and candelabra, like fiery fir trees, gleamed festively in the gilded casements. There were blinds looped and fringed like a prawn's belly. There were rugs in rows like an otter's offering, and tripods smoked with perfumes of musk and borneol, and behind the throne waved fans of pheasant feathers. So it's just, you know, I think there's good as a, as a way of really driving home how, um, you know, kind of grand and... Um, how no expense seems to have been spared in in the construction and preparation of this of this this space to receive her. My kind of off kilter remark here is that it occurred to me that Musk has really gone out of fashion lately. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are people still in? Is Musk still a desired fragrance? What even it seems so uh, like prominent historically, but. Something happened. I, I think we've lost our um, our lust for musk. So this is one taken from. It's one of those uh, perfumes taken from an animal, right? Um, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think it's actually taken from the gland of the musk deer, um, which is why yes. they have the name, right? Uh, yeah, I wonder. Maybe there's an artificial replacement, which is which is better somehow. It's it's a bit like. Uh, do you know uh, verdigris? Um, this is another thing that's taken. Uh, which I think it was a bass note in 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 perfume. So, it's hmm. um, it gives the um, the 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 perfume its underlying fragrance. Uh, this one I think maybe has also gone out of fashion because it used to be harvested from a whale's anus. <laughs> I, I I kid you not. <laughs> uh, so, um, is this kind of like a? Like some weird kind of thing that's sort of disgusting, but also appealing at the same time. I was trying to figure out like the uh, the psychology of Musk. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to go too far down this road. No, I think. I think we have a lot to talk about. I think there's something to it, right? There, there must be something to. Perhaps it can be overpowering, but in very, very small quantities, the fragrance somehow becomes appealing. Anyway, <laughs> I I just had one one further comment on this, which is you know how we were observing how. This kind of distance is opened up between Yuan Chun and her family, and clearly she wants to be. She kind of wants to go back to being, um, the. She just wants to be part of the family again, and and you know, kind of spend time with them as a as daughter or cousin or or niece, you know, w w whatever in whatever role. But she's constrained by these rituals that she now has to observe as an imperial concubine. And I guess that the changing of the name here is a reflection of that. You know, she's saying, 
let's do away with the kind of pompous names, even if they're appropriate to ritual, and replace them with something more kind of, I guess, in tune with how she, she wants it to be. So she doesn't want it to be this precinct of the celestial visitant. She wants it to be just a nice place for, for them to, to, to have their reunion, to have their visit.